Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people to dreams to adult people living those dreams or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Kadice Mobley is a comedian whose star has been on the rise since the start of the pandemic. Mobley landed on Vulture's Comedians You Should and Will Know list in 2021, made her late-night debut on The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, and performed at the Netflix is a Joke Festival in 2022 as part of the Introducing Showcase. She also launched an Instagram Live and podcast called Make Yourself Cry. Now she's more fully introducing herself to the world with her debut comedy album, Follow-Up Question, out now via Blonde Medicine. Mobley joined me over Zoom to talk about how she pivoted from studying psychology to performing comedy, her work with a nonprofit, seeing how comedy can change hearts and minds on critical issues, and what has made her cry along the way. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my Substack called Pivony at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! I'm not going to drink while we do it. I put my drink over to the side. <laughs> Professional. I was about to take a sip, and I was like, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I, I appreciate that professionalism. I so, can you I am sitting next to an open window. I'm so sorry. But it's if I don't open my window, then it is 90 degrees in here. So. Oh, no, I'm the same way. Okay. It's, it's part of living in New York City. Yeah. You know, it was only during the pandemic that I learned the reason that New York City apartment buildings radiators are so crazy is because of the 1918 pandemic. Oh. And so they they built these radiators to keep warm while you also had the windows open so you got fresh air to keep it circulating so you weren't sharing air with everybody else who had the the flu pandemic of 1918 to 1920. We have better health technology than just make buildings really, really hot and unlivable unless you open the windows and hear New York City all the time. Right, but what's living in New York City if you can't hear New York City? Yes, that's why people are here. <laughs> so, Kenny Smobley, last things first, congratulations on your debut stand-up comedy album. Thank you so much. I'm excited. Yeah, and of course it helps because uh, it allows me to ask you all sorts of follow-up questions. Yeah, that's the title of the album. Um, first up, I know you've done quite a bit of press where you talk about how the original plan was to get a PhD in psychology. Yes. So, so you you start out on that path. You get you mm-hmm. get your bachelor's in psychology in North Carolina, North Carolina Central. Yes. What happened? Because okay. then you go from that to Boston University and doing like the MFA film program at BU. So what happened in Durham? What happened? No. So I was actually living in Washington, D.C. There's a program called the, I think it's UNC in D.C. And they take students from all of the constituent University of North Carolina schools since it's a rather large public university system. They take students from each of those universities and they put you in this like apartment building in dc so you live with people from different states or not different states you live with people from different schools from different parts of the state which don't honestly have that much interaction so 
talking to people who's like, yeah, my campus is right next to a pig farm. And I'm also talking to people who are like, yeah, I go to UNC and it's like uh, there are world-class scholars here and all that sort of stuff. So it was really cool to be there. And while you're there, you have to have uh, – some people had two jobs. I just had one job uh, because they wanted me to come in every day. And I worked at the American Psychological Association, which was a lot of fun. And I got to uh, – my job was – speaking with different psychological organizations in England, Australia, and India, trying to make sure that there was sharing of documentation. So all of the research studies that were done here, making sure that they could be available to scholars in those other places. But I was doing that, and I was talking to a friend, and he was talking about, I think, a 24-hour movie festival where like or a 24-hour film thing where you like in 24 hours you're supposed to get the prompt write a script shoot it edit it and be done with it within 24 hours and he's like it's really hard I can't think of anything with these random elements and I was like oh well with those elements you would do this 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 or this or you could do another one that's like this this and he's like okay it's really weird that you just came up with four ideas for this within our conversation like you talk about movies all the time, but you never talk about psychology. <laughs> Why aren't you doing something with movies? Mm-hmm. And I was like, honestly, because I never thought about it before. Um, and then I wrote to a bunch of universities uh, because I'm a big old dork and that's probably one of my first moves. But I was like, yeah, what are the steps? What are you looking for in people that would be a part of this program? It's something I'm genuinely interested in. And they were like, do you want to do film studies or production? And I had already done um, a fair amount of photography in undergrad and I was a photographer for the school newspaper and I really like photography. So I was like, I want to do photography motion. I want to do production. So mm-hmm. I ended up at Boston university doing film production. So how quickly after showing up in, in Boston, do you get lured into the comedy scene? So it was a, a long journey actually. So I, I moved to Boston. I'm in the film program. I hate, that it's so cold there. I think Boston is (laughs) like, I was just like, this place is gross, whatever. (laughs) I do the program. The program actually ends in Los Angeles. I stay in Los Angeles for two and a half years. I date someone who's doing stand up, or he said he was doing stand up. And then I went to one of his shows and Mm. it turns out it was an open mic and he was terrible. And I was like, Oh, they just let anyone do this. (laughs) Oh, so just, I, if anyone can do this, if he right. can do this poorly, then I could do this. And then I started listening to stand-up albums on Spotify. I think mm-hmm. now, like, based on some disputes, not all of them are there. But Correct. I used to listen to them all the time. And it would just be, like, all day at work. Listening to albums and then taking notes on, like, okay, I like this structure, but I don't like this structure. And if I was going to tell the stroke, instead of it going, like, A, B, C, or even A, C, E, I would go from here to here to here to make it like a wackier thing. Or I think comparing these two things is more interesting. And from there, I developed my first five. Both of the stories you just told involve you encountering an, a field of of work that, that at first seems foreign to you, but then you logically figure it out. Like the first story involved your friend who's doing the Quickie Film Festival. Yeah. And you're like, just do A to B to C to D to E. And then you, you just described the process of writing a joke the exact same way. So Maybe that's the way I, yeah, I think that's how I think 
I guess. I don't, have you I've always, never noticed that, but thank you. Have you always loved puzzles? Um, I do. I don't, okay. When you say puzzles, I do think of like a hundred piece or no, a thousand piece, like right, physical puzzle. puzzle. And while I do own some of those behind me, those mm-hmm. take me so long that I lose interest, but I do love like the Wordle. And so every day I do wordle and mm-hmm. i do framed and then okay. there's actoral um framed is bit like frames of a film and you have six guesses to guess what it is and mm-hmm. i do actoral where it'll be a person's like some of their movies but all the like instead of the name so if it was like secret garden it would be uh six X's in a row and then mm-hmm. a space and then six X's in a row. But it's that and it tells you the year for all those. And you just have to guess based on this combination of letters and years and genres, like right. who it is that they're talking about. And then I also love the Sudoku puzzles in the New York Times, the spelling bee in the New York Times. So I like those types of puzzles right. um, that are so yes. shorter. So yes, <laughs> so I guess, you love you love yes. being able to something where you can like break it down, uh deconstruct and put it back together. Yes. Yes, I guess you- I do. Were you also like a big, big on when Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon was a thing? Yes, I was. Because <laughs> it's the same what? concept. You're like this to this to this to this to this. Yes. Okay. So, so you're from North Carolina originally? I am. Okay. So you go to BU, you decide that's gross, but you go to school there anyhow. And then you just said you were in LA for two and a half years. Yes. So, so what that's... were you? Yes. Yeah, so what was going on there? So I was interning at two places. One was a place that did reality TV and specifically a lot of interior design, like HGTV type shows. Mm-hmm. And I was an intern there. So I worked two days a week there and two days a week at an ad. Like it's it's not an ad agency exactly, but it's an agency that represents directors who direct commercials. And that was fun. But after the program ended, I didn't have a job and I was slowly running out of money. And so I got a job working in the sales department for a startup that sells text message marketing to other companies. And it would be mainly at first shady club promoters. But then we got contracts to work with like major health organizations, which makes me have less faith in their decision-making capabilities because we weren't a good company, yet they were giving us lots of money to do something that I'm not sure we ever technically got the ability to do well. Mm. So, but it was a fun startup. And then they were like, I was like, I think I need to move back to Boston. Cause also a friend from grad school was like, Hey, if you move back to Boston, you can produce this short that I'm working on. And so I was like, can I take my job? And they were like, sure. So I moved back to Boston and then I started comedy. So having that experience under your belt, did that, how did that influence or impact your ambitions in show business? Um, The startup stuff or the LA stuff? The LA stuff. Uh, It let me know that I don't want to do everything. Like in LA, there's kind of, uh, or when I was there, 
And based on what I was doing, there was this kind of, oh, that's so interesting. I actually do something like that. Or, oh, I could do that. Always be open, open to possibility. Always kind of make it seem as though you could be interested. But so never outright say no to something, but always make it seem like you could do that or you could be interesting or you are interested or something like that. And based on that experience and then moving back to Boston and starting comedy, uh, it made me more clearly say that seems interesting. I don't want to do that. Or like, wow, cool. I hope you find that because I can't say yes to everything or that I might be able to do everything. That's just not plausible. Yeah. Okay. So you start comedy in Boston. I'm guessing the comedy studio is probably the, was it the main or slash only place to be able to get, Stage time as someone who's just starting out? No. So there are, or and this is before the pandemic. So I've gone back since then or during the pandemic, mm-hmm. we're still in it. And a yes, lot of it has we changed. We are still in it. Yes. Yes, we're still <laughs> in it. <laughs> um, so a lot of it has changed, but there right, were that's why I ask. a lot of shows. And so I remember the first show I ever got booked on was a show called The Gas at... Great Scott in Alston. And I got booked on that based on someone seeing me at open mics. Mm-hmm. So you like, or my path was doing open mics around the city, being seen at those open mics, being booked by other people at the open mics to do shows. And then I think after doing comedy for about like seven or eight months, somebody was like, Hey, Rick, you've got to see this lady. He saw me. And then I started getting booked there regularly until like, uh, I think two years later I was doing the comic in residence program. Okay. Yeah. And then at at what point did you realize I need to get out of Boston? So it was around the time that I got offered to do the comic in residence program, but it was Mm -hmm. also, I came down to New York uh, visiting a friend for just a weekend. And I was like, okay, this feels better. <laughs> like as far as like a variety of people and a variety of styles of comedy right. and just more venues to explore the specificity of what you're interested in. Because even though I say there are some shows that there were some shows in Boston, uh, there weren't nearly as many as there are in New York. And because of that in New York, I do think that you can get really and not too niche so niche that you can't play in other places but you can find places to really explore what your comedic voice is specifically Mm -hmm. um and get some of those niche curiosities out and also just see some of the people who are doing it on a really high level which pushes you to improve faster um so i was like wow this really feels like the place i need to be so i made a plan like okay that was in 20 15 and I was like okay by the end of 2016 I want to be in New York so I was like okay I'm gonna come down every two months and then it became every month and then by the last two months it was like every two weeks I was coming down and that's when I started getting an apartment and finding a job and that kind of stuff so then you you finally make it to New York and then the pandemic starts thankfully there was a couple of years between those two things I'm maybe I'm older than (laughs) Look, I I have an age, whatever. It's not important. But uh, I moved here at Mm -hmm. the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017. Okay. Yeah. So where were you at in your career when the pandemic started? So the pandemic started... 
did you have a day job where you or were you working? So I had just quit my day job and mm-hmm. I was working. I had worked on it, it ended up being online sketches mostly, but they were like, we're going to do a show with the nonprofit Color of Change, where you're going to be writing sketches with a team of other comedians uh, for that. And so I thought that was going to be a longer job. It ended up being a shorter job, but I quit another startup that also did text message marketing. And I had quit that to do this sketch show. And then that ended and then the pandemic started. Okay. Yeah. So... I know a lot of comedians wondered at the beginning of the pandemic, what is this going to do to my career? Yes. And like even people who were, who had established, I mean, maybe even more so people who were established headliners because they relied on road gigs and suddenly there were no road gigs or you could go to Florida and Texas, but that was about it. Right. (laughs) But for an up and coming comedian, it's like even, even more of a dilemma. So I've talked to I've talked to some comedians who TikTok became their thing. Oh wow. For you, you started an Instagram live. Yes. Show. I, mean, I started that show simultaneously. Of course. I was also like on Redfin and Zillow looking at like housing prices in the Philadelphia suburbs. Maybe mm-hmm. if I move to this, I can make this work financially because houses are so much less expensive there. Okay. <laughs> Do I need to move back home? Like I, I was really kind of smiling, but I did make a show based on, uh, several conversations where it was like, Oh, I don't, I just, I don't cry really. <laughs> um, so the show was make yourself cry and it would mm-hmm. be guests. And it's usually comedians that I know and some people that I really look up to. So I thought it was like, yay, thanks so much for coming on the show. But it would be me asking them about the things that made them cry. And we would see if that thing would make me cry. And a few people did it, but not that many people did. Was that was that show, which you did as Instagram Live and then also Planet Scum, which is... yes podcasting and twitch and that was um was that related to chris gethard or i just yes. associated with- yes okay. chris gethard is a big part of planet scum but okay. also he had a show or two on right network. that's why i yeah. associate with him so did that show help you more professionally or personally probably personally uh it's very helpful to discuss like people should have therapy and like professionals help them. I would never say that anything can replace what that does, but mm-hmm. just, especially when I, I felt like uh, <laughs> totally isolated and like I was losing my mind, it was really helpful on a personal level to spend an hour every week talking to someone about where we were, uh, about what makes them cry about kind of the things that we think are significant um, kind of, it would end up turning into like kind of where we want to be emotionally. And that was really interesting. And I mean, maybe it helped like in that Chris Gethard has a better idea of who I am. And based on some other things I got to have, like Roy Wood Jr. And getting to talk to them was really fun because seeing those people who I just think of as like, I've looked up to Roy Wood Jr. for such a long time and hearing him talk about like emotional stuff or just the annoyance of having to pick up uh, Legos after a small child, like that was really refreshing and nice. Did that make you cry? Um, I think I, like a little bit, like I think my, like I would count it if it was a little mm-hmm. bit, because honestly, 
I don't react to that much, which I'm working on, but like he got me to like a little bit of tearing. Um, Sebastian Canelli, who's a really great improviser, got me to all out cry. Um, River Butcher got me to cry. Like a few people just like really got me to like, uh, okay. yeah. Did your WWE experience make you cry? Yes. I don't know how much I can say about that, but I think they have bigger problems, so I don't think they care much about what I have to say. Uh, what I can say about it... Right. Is, no, I, uh, that's why I asked the question the way I okay. did. I was like... <laughs> what I can say about it is I went through six rounds of interview where my experience with that organization was made very clear and they were celebrating a new perspective on the material. Mm. And then the second fans miscommunicate and misconstrue how long I had been working there and what my knowledge was and when I had it. As soon as that happened for them to just put their hands up and be like, this is all on her instead of saying uh, something along the lines of, yes, we are looking for people with comedy backgrounds and writing backgrounds who have experience in making this more entertaining for you, the fans. And we stand behind our own policies instead just saying she said the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a little bit frustrating moving forward. I probably won't talk about a job that I'm about to start publicly. Right. Uh but I do think that the way that some people came after me and said nasty things about me, my looks, my race, I had to close all my social accounts, people on LinkedIn telling me that I was a dumb bitch and that I was besmirching an entire community of fans, which I wasn't trying to do at any point. Um, that was really frustrating. And well, that was something that happened. So what was your next move after locking up the socials and <laughs> and, and crying a little bit? What was yeah. What was um, your next move out of that? I went to one of my favorite places for a month. I I don't care if it makes me seem bougie or like mm-hmm. a middle-aged character in a movie I don't care I really like Paris and so I (laughs) have been a few times Mm -hmm. and I had some savings and Airbnbs were really cheap then and so I was like all right I'll I'm gonna go (laughs) to Paris for a month and I took cooking classes and I went to Italy for a little while and I walked through the most pretentious cemeteries you've ever seen and I fucking (laughs) loved it so yeah i agree with you sometimes you just have to do things you have to like pamper yourself or just or take maybe the word isn't pamper maybe just take care of yourself right yeah because we're fragile and when we've been and when we've been like attacked or we feel we've been attacked it's like you can you can go into your shell and hide but then that doesn't do it that much good it just makes you hide out from everything. Yeah. It's also not, it's not healthy to focus on that for too long. And I realized that I was doing that. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I can't think about what everyone who doesn't like me thinks about me. It's unfortunate. A lot of circumstances went into that. 
And it really, yeah, it, it stunk. And I was really questioning my future and what I was going to be able to do and that. But then I have to remember, like, there's a base you that exists outside of this profession that is curious and interested in exploring and learning new things. And I do think that you need to feed that part because if you just focus on this stuff, you're going to go crazy. So, yeah, I needed to – I. I would never be so pretentious as to say I needed to go to Paris for a month because that's up my own ass. But I did need, I needed to take a step back, take a breather and reassess what was important to me. Right. Yeah. It could be Paris, Texas. It doesn't have to be Paris. I, I don't know about Paris, Texas. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about that. I've never been, but uh, I got some questions. Yeah. <laughs> right. It could be Moscow, Idaho, not Moscow, Russia. Um Yeah. So at what point do you get involved with Comedy Central and their creators program? Okay, so I should say I worked with the... So as soon as I was no longer working with WWE, mm-hmm. I started working with the organization that I had been working with uh, since November of 2020, which is the Center for Media and Social Impact, which is a great organization that does the research into how comedy is tied to changing people's ideas and also does like these comedy think tanks for different nonprofit organizations where we'll work with someone like the foundation that's built to fight racism in the South, specifically speaking to a white audience and looking at comedic ways to do that because it's mm-hmm. not fun to be like, hey, Trump voters, you should believe this. Like that doesn't work. That's right. not an effective way to actually change hearts and minds. But to point out the comedy in some of the beliefs, to point out the humanity in other people through comedy, uh, that is way more effective. So we'd have little writers rooms where we get people together for a week and buy together. This is the height of the pandemic. I mean, over Zoom and mm-hmm. we'd write stuff and we'd submit projects to them and they'd go on to make some projects. Like we ended up making some projects with uh, the organization Illuminative, which works on native visibility uh, because it's bad. And so we made a, like a little talk show with Joyelle Nicole Johnson and Adrian Chelapa talking specifically about the shared struggles of the black community and the Indian community uh, or the native community. Goodness gracious. Uh, so yeah. That is what I was doing uh, on and off. So before WWE, after WWE, mm-hmm. and then for a while I was doing that simultaneously to Comedy Central. So they have an okay. application process. I got the application. My manager, I wasn't going to do it because I had done it before and I didn't advance. And I was like, I probably, you know, I don't know if I'm what they're looking for. But my manager was like, can you just do this? And so I made a video and they were like, yes, we think you should do this. And so we have, uh, I was accepted in the program. Another person was as well. His name's Brooks Allison. He's also the guitarist for a band called Slothrus because he's like really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like a big deal. And um, and I'm like, oh, hey, I'm also here. And then we go to morning meetings and we pitch projects and we make projects. And then like we're shooting a bunch of stuff this week and I'm really excited about it. I had to take a break this summer. But yeah, just to consistently go into a writer's room where you pitch ideas and to write sketches is really, really fun. Okay, but you mentioned this nonprofit, the Center for yes. Media and Social Impact. And two things came to mind. First, right off the bat, I've had so many conversations with comedians who will debate whether comedy can have a positive social impact or not. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, there's there's a lot of back and forth on like are we just are we just jesters 
or or can we or can we use humor to to sneak in persuasive messaging right um the second thing is i wonder what your nonprofit would have to say to dave chappelle uh <laughs> i'm not the person to ask specifically about Dave Chappelle, but I will mm-hmm. say uh, the person who leads the center, mm-hmm. Dr. Katie Borum, has written several books on how comedy affects it because she used to work with Norman Lear and they discussed frequently and also talked about how mass media can change the way that people think about things. And if we believe that, then the people who create that are often also creators and comedians and writers and stuff. The things that they create have the ability to do that. So yes, it could be stand up. Yes, it's what people write. Yes, it's things we see on TV. Uh, but comedians are part of that. I don't look, I'm a trans people have rights and deserve them. And that's what I'm going to say about what Dave Chappelle has to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I've written quite a bit about Dave Chappelle over the years and, and watching his path over the last three or four years has been quite stunning and baffling. But, but even with just him hosting Saturday night live again, recently people like Dave Chappelle or people like Joe Rogan, they say, well, we're just, Either we're just being idiots, so don't, why does anyone believe us or trust us? But then they take these big platforms and they're using it to spread these ideas and this nonsense that other people take seriously. And, but I I bring this up. So you just put out an album yourself. Do you hope to be changing people's hearts and minds with it? Or do you just want people to laugh or what is your approach to? My approach is always comedy first. So I do think what is funny, but my psychology background and my background in nonprofits does make me, okay, why is this the assumption? Why do we all behave this way? It's Mm -hmm. very interesting to me how people think and therefore how they react to some of the things that I say. And you can hear some of that on the album, but also just like, at a show I did two nights ago, uh, we as an audience, I, I'm performing, but like the way that people are like expressing some preconceived notions and biases and the way that other people in the audience are like, no, fuck that, that's stupid. <laughs> or like, um, I really enjoy creating that conversation. And some people do that um, or attempt to do that by asking a salacious question and then say, I'm just asking questions. But they are acting as though that there aren't people who actually live that experience every day. They are acting as though that question hasn't been asked before. And they are acting as though there aren't clear answers to those questions if they bothered to look for a single fucking second. But instead, isn't it funny to say, oh, this person that exists, what if I think their existence is silly? Or what if this is a silly thing to make fun of, even though they're already kind of a punching bag to a lot of people. And that does feel honestly kind of irresponsible. Like you, if you like, I'm not famous. Some people will listen to what I have to say. I do think I'm rather responsible when it comes to larger, uh, platforms that are not my own. Um, my own, I say the dumbest shit. I, I, whatever. But like, if I am doing something on another platform, on a show, on something like that, and when I say a show, I mean, like a show that's on TV, not like my friend's bar show that gets 12 people. I 
I do think there is a responsibility there not to make it so that another group of people have a worse life. And I don't think that's too much to ask for. <laughs> like, I, I don't, I, I'm, some people are like, you're pro censorship. And I wouldn't say that, but I would say like, if what you're saying allows someone to say, I am right in hating a group of people, especially one that I don't actually know about. Um, you shouldn't hate groups of people anyway. That's bad. But especially if you don't actually fucking know about that group of people and your main experience or with that group is through this guy saying, I don't know, but I think he's a he like mm-hmm. that's that seems fucked up. I'm sorry. I'm going to go on a rant. But uh, yeah, that seems like why you don't need that smoke. You could talk about anything. <laughs> like you, right. really, you, people will, if you're at a level where people pay so much to fucking see you, they're going to laugh regardless. They're going to put in their heads that they're having a good time regardless. You, you want to try to be good and you do want to try to be funny, but that doesn't have to mean, Oh, let me shit on this group of people. <laughs> That's not what that means. Right. No, I mean, I always, I always, Point it back on the the fact that you as a comedian, not you specifically, but you specifically for your album, <laughs> but but you as a comedian decide what your what words are going to come out of your mouth. So at a certain point, you decided that this was the way to go. Yeah, you're not just asking questions. You're you're like, no, this is what's going to help me. Mm-hmm. Make it's more concerning money. that, or this is what I really. I want, I would much rather talk about this thing than this other thing. Yep. Because it is partially like, okay, what does the audience respond to? That's the direction I'm going to go in. But also it has to be within my interest and within like what I want to talk about. So, Mm -hmm. and I say, I'm using that I, but I'm saying that kind of generally. It is a thing that is being driven by two different motivations. Um, And to act like you aren't in control of any of that is, yeah, disingenuous. Well, Kenise Mobley, thank you for spending some time with me. <laughs> I once again congratulate you on your debut album, Follow Up Question. You. And I look forward to uh, asking you follow up questions sometime later. That sounds great. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks. Sweet. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Bye.